Amen. Hey, uh, grab a seat, and as you do, get a Bible. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you would, in that Bible, Philippians 3. And uh, while you turn there, let me just kind of give you a heads up of where we're going today and then uh, in the uh, few weeks to come. But today I'm going to preach from Philippians 3, a message called Hope-Filled Homesickness. And we're going to get into that in a few minutes and talk about what that means. Uh, uh, I I would invite you Thursday night to our Christmas Eve service as well. Uh, Just to be a great time for us to gather as a family, as a church family, and uh, worship our way into Christmas. And so remember, uh, 3.30 and 5 o'clock are the Christmas Eve services this Thursday. And then uh, next Sunday, a message called, Why We Needed 2020. Do you agree with that? We needed 2020. Well, uh, we're going to preach a message out of James next week and just talk about what? Uh, How can God use this year? Uh, This year that's been, uh, we could use a lot of words to describe it, but how is God at work in our hearts through this year? Remember next week, we just have the two services, uh, uh, no third service next week. So jump into our 830 or our 10 o'clock service next Sunday. And then on the third, we're going to kick off the year with a message called The Way, The Truth, and The Life. We're just going to get our eyes on Jesus. Jesus as we start another year. I want to make a note about January 3rd. Uh, in the third service, uh, starting January 3rd, we're going to have a mask-required service. And so first two services are totally the same, exactly what we've been doing. Uh, but we, the, the blessing in the season is we get three services, and uh, we want to tailor one of those for the folks who uh, would like to gather and want to keep masks on the whole time. And so just so you know, third service starting January 3rd, masks required for that. The other two services will be exactly as we've been doing up to this point. And then on January 10th, we're back in the book of Genesis. So that's where we're going in the weeks to come. Uh, but today, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, I want to ask a question. When's, uh, when's the last time you felt homesick? When's the last time you felt homesick? Uh, now, for some of you, maybe uh, uh, because of the way you're wired, you have to look all the way back to like second grade summer camp for the last time you felt so homesick. Others of you right now, you're like, I'm homesick right now. Uh, but when, when's that last time you felt that? And I kind of want to draw up the emotion that goes with feeling homesick, the pit in the stomach, the weight on the chest, the, the, the longing to be somewhere that your feet currently are not. And, and um, none of us like that feeling. Uh, for me, it was uh, about midway through the second semester of my freshman year that just an intense season of homesickness felt in it. I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like kind of the, the pit in my stomach that I carried with me through the day. But here's the thing. Um, this feeling of homesickness can actually be a great teacher to us who are believers. What do I mean by that? We are people who live with a sense of homesickness. We, we are longing to go home, to be with God. And, and, and today, I want to talk to us about this unique place we are in as believers in this day who, be, who are living between two comings. And here's what I mean by that. We are people living between the Christmas coming of the Savior and the second coming of the Savior, And so we live with this, what I'm calling today, hope-filled homesickness. We're going to talk about the hope that we draw from the Christmas story that that God took on flesh and a Savior came to the world. And yet we're going to also talk about this homesickness that we long for him to return. And what should mark the life of a believer who lives with this hope-filled homesickness? And so today I really want to camp out in one verse 
Philippians 3, verse 20, and I want to break this verse into its three parts. And let me just tell you up front what I'm going to do. The first two parts are simply me being Captain Obvious today. I'm just going to state the obvious before us. But listen, I think sometimes it's important that we just state the obvious to each other and, and we're reminded of some things. And then in the third part today, I want to apply these things kind of where rubber meets the road. How should this impact the way we go about living our life? And so um, we're about to jump in to the middle of a letter, and we're about to really spend time in the middle of a paragraph in the middle of a letter. And so let's just acknowledge that when you get a letter in the mail, you don't open it and jump to the middle of it and then read a line in the middle of a paragraph. You, you, you read the whole thing to get the whole context. I'm not going to read all of the book of Philippians today, but you do need to know what's going on in this part of the letter. Paul's encouraging. He's saying, hey, believers, come on, let's go. Get your eyes vertical. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It's all going to be worth it. And guess what? Some stuff's going to be hard, and it's going to get challenging at times. And he's going to mention a group of people here who are people who are opponents to the cross, but then he's going to tell these believers, but here's what's true for us. And so uh, let me pick up this whole paragraph, Philippians 3, verse 17, and then we'll camp out in verse 20. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so uh, Paul gets to this part in the letter, and he says, hey, um, uh, walk in a way that imitates the example we've set for you. But, but you got to know something, believer. There's also going to be people living amongst you you're going to be people living in the midst of a people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he describes what these enemies of the cross of Christ look like. He, he says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They're just following what their appetites want. Um, they glory in their shame. They're, they're, they're glorying. They're rejoicing in things that God would look at as shameful. Their minds are set on earthly things. Paul's like, believer, you're going to be living in the midst of a culture that is enemies of the cross. But then he turns his attention to them, and he wants to remind them of something. And in doing so, he's reminding us of something who get the privilege of living between the Christmas coming and the second coming. He says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're not from here ultimately. We are travelers. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are weird aliens here. It's what scripture says. This isn't our final home. And it, it, like, does anything about this last year make you say a big amen to that? Like this isn't it, believer. Our citizenship ultimately is laid up and resides in heaven. And this is what fills the believer with this 
this homesickness, this longing to be in the perfect presence of God. And it's just the first thing I want to bring out from the first part of this. I just want to state the obvious before us. We are to live a hope-filled, homesick life. We are to live a hope-filled, homesick life. When it says that our citizenship is in heaven, it reminds us that we're longing for a place that we're not yet at. And yet, this homesickness for the believer, it doesn't make us like these huge fatalists where we're like, oh, Monday tomorrow, who cares? What's the big deal? I'm a citizen of heaven anyway. Why even get out of bed on Monday? No, we live as hope-filled homesick people. Why? Because God took on flesh, was born humbly and laid in a manger, lived a perfect life, on our behalf, died the criminal's death on the cross, you and I deserve to die, was laid in a tomb, he was raised three days later, he is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning, he has given his spirit to indwell us the moment we believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and he has left us with a mission to spread his name and fame across this globe. That's why we get up and say, Monday, baby, let's go. We live with a hope filled because of the reality of Christmas, homesickness, because we wait for his second coming. We're waiting to be perfectly in his presence. And that's the tension the believer walks with this hope-filled homesickness. Um, I've mentioned to you before, my brother-in-law stationed in Korea with the army right now, and uh, we've been trying to talk every Saturday morning early just to stay tethered together, uh, you know, being across the world. And um, last, uh, last Saturday, he picked up the phone, and immediately there's something different in his voice. And, you know, just this, this, this pep, this energy, this excitement, you know what it was? He's coming home on Christmas Eve. And like he, he, like you could hear, like he, he'd been living with a sense of homesickness for the last year stationed there. Now there's hope. There's hope of going back home. This is how the believer lives. We live with that hope that we're going to be in God's presence one day. And so I told you, uh, first point where it's just stating the obvious, we're to live this hope-filled, homesick life. But all we've done so far is made a statement. We, we've, we've not actually nailed down why. Why specifically does the believer live with a sense of homesickness? We've alluded to it. We've mentioned some things, but we've not drilled down and just said specifically, put it right there on the table. This is why we're homesick in many ways. Look back at the verse, verse uh, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await. What are we awaiting? What's it say? We're awaiting a Savior. And then I love that the Apostle Paul, anytime he brings Christ up, he's like, Let, let's say the name. We're awaiting a Savior. And who is this Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to see um, how the New Living Translation translates this verse, because I think it's helpful in some ways how this breaks this out. But it says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Don't miss that line. Our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is heaven because that's where Jesus is. What makes heaven heaven? Jesus makes heaven heaven. 
All the way back to this question that's often thrown around. The first time I heard it, Francis Chan had asked it in a sermon. Others have said it. But he said, if you could have heaven without Jesus, would you take it? And so as you think in your mind, like, oh, man, like, how do I picture heaven? If you could have Jesus, or if you could have heaven without Jesus, like, would you settle for that? And the, the heart cry of every believer should be, no. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. This idea of heaven isn't just that, like, oh, I've heard heaven's going to be pretty good, like, like uh, the Caribbean's pretty good, or like Naples, Florida's pretty good. No, no, no. What makes heaven a place our heart longs for is the presence of the Savior there. And I just want to state that obvious. Here's the second thing. So let's build these. We're to live a hope-filled, homesick life, and our homesickness comes from a longing to be with Jesus. Our homesickness comes from a longing for our faith to turn to sight. Guys, can you imagine the day when we're actually standing before him? Can you fathom it? Like, I think that's what made that Mercy Me song, right, just explode. Because that song brings out this this aspect of our heart. I can only imagine what it'll be like when I'm standing there. I won't keep saying because you'll just keep singing it in your head then. But like it brought out that longing of our heart. Like, wow, I can't even fathom what it will be like. The homesickness stems from the longing to be with Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, and heaven's where Jesus lives. Heaven's where Jesus is. Um, Isn't this true about how homesickness works? We're usually homesick because there's a longing to be in the presence of a loved one. You know, we can miss different aspects or whatever, but really what drives homesickness is the relationships. I remember uh, um, shortly after Erica and I started dating, I was leading a group, I was one year out of college, leading a group of college guys on a missions trip to Africa. And um, I remember planning for like 10 days. How in the world am I going to go 10 days without talking to her, right? And so I'm planning over there like, okay, I'm going to try to find a little shop in the village that has internet access so we can communicate because I'm going to miss her so much. And then a guy on the trip is like, hey, my cell phone's got an international plan to it. And so like every night our work would get done. I'd grab this guy's cell phone. I'd be talking to Erica forever. That cell phone would get passed around to all the guys uh, longing to communicate with their loved ones. It's, it's the relationship with the loved one that drives the homesickness. Funny end of that story, that guy really didn't have an international plan. He got his phone bill next month, and he was a bit surprised. And we're all like college guys, or one year out of college, like, dude, I got like, I got 20 bucks for you, right? I'm talking like thousands, thousands. It was bad, bad day for him. But what drives the homesickness is the relational longing. And what drives our hope-filled homesickness as believers, like we can't wait to be in the presence of Jesus, unmarred, unhindered by this brokenness, this sin in which the world, in, uh, from which the world we live in. Um, so we said we're to be these hope-filled, homesick people. We've said that our homesickness derives from, like, we can't wait to be in his presence. But now, like, this, this third part is really where the rubber hits the road. How are we to live as believers full of hope and yet homesick and longing for his return? That's where I think the great tension comes in for our life. Like, like what should that really look like, though, when we leave church today, when we, when we maybe go to work tomorrow, when we gather with family and friends for the holidays? Like, how should this affect the way I live? And fortunately for us, 
this verse also unpacks a bit how we're to live this out. And I, I want to I pull this out from us. So let me read it out of the, our, our Bible's uh, translation, the ESV that I preach from, and then I want to show it to us in the NLT again as well. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we what? From it we what? From it we say it loud. From it we what? We wait. From it we await. We're waiting. The NLT says it like this, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting. We are eagerly waiting for him to return as a Savior. Do you remember? Wait, like, do you know what eager waiting feels like? Like, I remember as a little kid, one of the special things that I always did with my uncle, he, he would go to the, the high school basketball or football games, and if my parents were going, he would always call and make sure that, hey, does Brock want to come? Great. I could not wait all day. I would go out of my house, and I would sit down on the curb of the road, and I would just sit, and sometimes I'm like, now that I got little kids, I'm like, my parents just let me sit at the curb of the road, like waiting. But I would sit there and I'd wait and I would look down. We lived on Pleasant Street in Bowes Road. And I would look down at the intersection of Bowes Road and I'd be like, oh, there, there, there. oh no, that's not him. Oh, there, there. And then I'd see his silver Buick turn the corner and like, I'd get on my feet and I'd be waiting there, eager waiting. We are people in eager waiting. We are eager waiters. For the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking, we're looking, Lord, are you coming? Are you coming? Are you coming? Lord, today. We'll take it today. This is how the New Testament believers lived. Like when the Apostle Paul writes, he's always talking about the day. The day, the day, the day. And so um, we are to live a hope-filled, homesick life. We're homesick because we long to be with Jesus. So we live after his Christmas coming. The reality that Jesus really, historically, it's real. He came to earth, took on flesh, came on the, the, the cosmic rescue mission of all rescue missions. We live after his Christmas coming, eagerly awaiting his second coming, when, we, when he will come fully and finally, and he will, he will restore this brokenness. He will create, a, make a new heaven and a new earth, and all things will be restored to what he intended them to be before sin entered the world. We live after his Christmas coming, eagerly awaiting his second coming. And so I, I, what I want us to take from this third point is that we live as eager waiters. But, but like, you know, if we're honest, we're like, that's kind of abstract. What, what is, what it really, what does that look like? What are the characteristics of an eager waiter? I'm so glad you asked. Here they are. The fruit of the eager waiters. Doesn't this sound like a Chronicles of Narnia title, right? The fruit of the eager waiters. What characterizes the life of someone longing with eyes fixed on Jesus coming back? The first thing I'll say is this. They worship constantly. They worship constantly. Now, now know this. I didn't have to just sit and, 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 and go like, hey, what are five things I can come up with of what the fruit is? No, all I'm doing is try to look back at the New Testament and to look at how do we see the believers living after the ascension of Christ, waiting for the second coming of Christ, what do we see characterize their life? And here's what they see. They were worshiping constantly. And I'm not talking about always just gathered in a big group singing songs. I'm talking about they understand all of their life was an act of worship. 
Uh, Romans 12, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so as we await Jesus to come back, filled with hope that we have from the fact that he came the first time to rescue us, we worship. We worship. Sunday morning is just the overflow of a week long of worship. We worship when we get up, and we worship when we're hanging with our families, and we worship when we go to work, and we worship when we meet with friends. It, all of life is to be this act of worship that lifts before the Lord as an aroma pleasing in His sight. We worship with our mouths. We worship with our hands. We worship with our body. We worship with the resources that God has entrusted to us. We worship. The second thing you see, the fruit of the eager waiters, they pray passionately. They pray passionately. Listen, prayer is not just this duty we have to do to try to be good religious folks. Prayer is a gift, like the gift of all gifts from the God of the universe who delights in talking to us. Can you believe that? He loves to talk to, to us. Have you ever met like someone you would say is famous and you're like kind of enamored by it and then like they didn't stop looking at their phone and they're like, hey, yeah, like, and you're like, ugh. Versus have you ever met someone who you, you would deem to be famous or really important and like you felt like they gave you all the time in the world and they just stopped and they, they, they hey, grab my number, let's connect more. Like think about that on a bajillion times bigger scale. The God of the universe is giving you all the time in the world to communicate with him. He loves to hear from us. He loves when we talk to him. And what you see by those who are eagerly awaiting, they're like, I can't wait till my faith will turn to sight, till I'll see you face to face. But until that time, I'm going to talk to you all the time. When I get up in the morning, we're going to talk. And I'll go to bed at night, we're going to talk. And then all through my day, we're going to talk. And this is why scripture talks about pray without ceasing. And everywhere you're going, you're looking crazy because you're talking in your car and someone next to you is like, what is that guy doing? You're talking to the Lord. They pray passionately because they love to talk to the one. They are homesick and can't wait to come back. Uh, they, the, the third thing I'd say, the fruit of the eager waiters for, for us, for our life, they share urgently, okay? They understand, we understand, if we're an eager waiter, like the hope of the world rests in the Christmas Easter story. The hope of the world. Like if God doesn't come, take on flesh, live a perfect life and go to the cross on our behalf, we're hopeless. We could not remedy our problem. But God loves us so much that his only begotten son leaves the glory of heaven, is born and laid in a manger, grows, grows up in a humble upbringing, lives the perfect life on our behalf. Like, we have to tell everyone that. We can't move out of our neighborhood until the neighbors know the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our coworkers, our family, our friends, like there's this urgency we see in scripture. The, the people are like, Jesus could come back today. We gotta tell this city. 
We got to tell them. They got to know there's this urgency to gospel proclamation. Man, even this week, can I just challenge this? Even this week, as we gather with friends, family for a Christmas holiday, do they, do, do they understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's an urgency to it. Um, I, I love this one, Fruit of the Eager Waiters. They love deeply. When, when, again, when you read, and I know I keep referring back, but when you read and when you see the early Christians full of hope from the resurrected Jesus, full of longing that he's coming back one day, look at how they loved each other. They loved authentically. They loved genuinely. They loved sacrificially. They loved each other. And, and for us, as, as we, as the body of Christ, interact with one another, that we would be marked by this otherworldly kind of love, genuine, authentic, sacrificial, because we are a gathering. That Literally, the word church means called out ones. We are these called out ones of God who, are, who have our eyes fixed on this return of this Savior one day. And as we wait for his return, we're going to love each other, banded together as these pilgrims that we are, unified around this Savior. We've got to love deeply. And then this last one, so important for us, fruit of the eager waiters, they reject the earthly. They reject the earthly. I mean, you, you look back in this passage, when Paul describes those who are enemies of the cross, he says their end is destruction, God is their belly, glory and their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Those who are eagerly awaiting this Savior, who they know personally the hope of, it, it gets our eyes vertical where we're no longer enamored and captured and captivated by merely earthly, temporal, worldly things. And, and, and here's why that's always good for us to remind each other of. And, and I'm not going to sit up here today and, and you know, throw up a, a categories and say, this is worldly, this is earthly, this is... No, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to apply this to us in the specific ways we need in our life. But we have to be reminded of something. We live in a world, in a culture where there's like a buco multi-billion dollar industry to try to get us hooked on things that are all worthly, or earthly and worldly and have zero eternal significance. Like, understand that. Like, billions and billions and billions of dollars go into marketing things, marketing products, marketing places, marketing whatever, that have zero eternal significance. And so we just need to understand that it's these, these weird pilgrims traveling through here who are longing for the citizenship that's laid up in heaven that like, get your eyes up, get your eyes up, get your eyes up, fix them on Jesus. And here's what happens when we, when we rise every day with our eyes fixed on Jesus when we have just like poured over the word in the morning, fallen more and more in love with him, when, when your eyes have been fixed on Jesus and then uh, you're bombarded with something that's like, like purely earthly, worldly in value, you're like, oh, pfft. that's got nothing. I've just been gazing at Jesus. I don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. And, and there's, there's this aspect where we have to be reminded that, man, we're, we're longing for something so much greater with eternal significance, not something of just like earthly, worldly value. The fruit of the eager waiter, they worship, they pray, they share, they love, they reject. 
because we are waiting for the hope that we know from the Christmas story to come back again one day. Amen? Amen. And so we live a life of hope-filled homesickness, and we eagerly await the second coming of Christ. We get this cool privilege of being the people living on this earth between two comings. The Christmas coming that brought the hope and the second coming where we'll, we'll see him and our faith will turn to sight. And you know what's so cool? As we live with this homesickness, um, God is so good to us that it's not just that we live, um, you know, it's not just that it's like, oh, we only look forward to the day when we'll see him face to face. We do. But he was so good to us that when he left the earth, like his disciples were like, hey, you know, stay with us forever. And he's like, no, it's better for you that I go. When I go, I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to send the helper. Like until that day when our faith is made sight and we see him face to face, he has given us his very spirit indwelling inside of us to guide us day by day, to commune with us day by day. That's how awesome and how good our God is. And so this week, man, my prayer this week, Christmas week brings with it all sorts of things. And I know 2020 might make it look different for you all, but you're, you're going to gather with people. You're going to maybe navigate the crowds at a mall. You're going to be, your, your schedule is going to be totally out of whack. And, and this week, would our hearts just stay set on the Savior who brought the hope into the world and the same Savior who will return again and will see him face to face. So church, if you would stand with me, I want to pray for that this week and we're going to worship our way out of here. Father God, I, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as a hope-filled, homesick people. Lord, uh, 2020 has, uh, I think, just revealed to us some of our homesickness more. But Lord, we aren't we are people crushed by it. We aren't people uh, uh, down in the dumps and depressed by our homesickness. We're a hope-filled homesick people. We know the hope that comes only through you, Jesus. We know that you're coming back one day, Jesus. And so, Lord, uh, we, this Christmas, we want to shut out all of the things that would distract us from that reality. And Jesus, we want you worshiped in our living rooms, around our dining rooms. As we gather as a church for Christmas Eve services, Lord, it is all about you. Thank you for your love for us, to trade the glory and the splendor of heaven, to come down into this brokenness, to live the life we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die, and to give us the hope that comes when we believe in you. Our hearts are full, and we praise you for it. And I pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' powerful name.